Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Dan Kilbride. I am the host of New Books in American Studies. I also teach early American history at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Today, we are joined by Randy Sparks, who is a professor of history at Tulane University, where I assume, unlike here, it is not snowing. (laughs) Um, And we are going to talk to him today about his new book, Where the Negroes Are Masters, an African Port in the Era of the Slave Trade which has just been published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Professor Sparks is also the author of The Two Princes of Calabar, an 18th century Atlantic odyssey, uh, which I have used in class before, and I'm using in class again uh, next semester. So uh, I, I strongly recommend that book to you. So Randy Sparks, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and especially uh, what brought you uh, to this book? Well, as as you've already said, I'm a professor of history at Tulane University, where I've been for about uh, 10 years or so now. Um, I am a Southern historian and a historian of the um, African Atlantic world. Um, And as you've uh, kindly mentioned, uh, my previous book is called um, The Two Princes of Calabar, an 18th century Atlantic odyssey, which um, focused on the the story of two um, African slave traders, members of a prominent slave trading family in Old Calabar who were captured, kidnapped into slavery and enslaved in the Americas and through a very roundabout way managed to, to reach um, England and, and through the courts uh, gained their freedom and returned home again to Old Calabar. And um, that, in many ways, that project led me to this one, uh, Dan, because I thought when I wrote that book that their case must be you know, very exceptional that there couldn't be many other examples of of uh, of Africans who were kidnapped into the trade and then uh, found their way home again. But I I ran across other examples and I began to to try to research other similar cases and to to track them down. And one of those um, cases was um, a man named William Cesaroco who was from the Gold Coast, from a slave trading uh, town called Anamabo. And um, I was able to to track him back to the Gold Coast. And it was it was that research that led me to to this town of Anamabo. And once once I began to do that research, I, I realized that there was a much bigger story here than than the simple, well, I say simple, the relatively simple story <laughs> of William right. Cesaroco, which is which was the story I set out to tell, but but I was led to a much bigger story. Right. Um, since this is a, a podcast on American studies, maybe uh, we should lay a foundation here uh, so our listeners can understand things. You already mentioned uh, this uh, area of of history, a relatively new one. Uh, that you called the you know Atlantic world or Atlantic studies. Uh, I wondered if you could. Uh, <laughs> I know this is going to be a tough request, but in, in, in sort of fifty words or less, could you uh, just describe what 
we mean when we talk about the Atlantic world? The Atlantic world uh, is is a, a sort of a, a new lens, I suppose, for viewing uh, the history of of the um, the coming together of of the continents of Europe and Africa and North and South America in the wake of Columbus's um, discovery in quotation marks of America. Uh, so it it looks at the movement of of goods, people, and ideas around the Atlantic world and how those those four continents um, came into um, conversation with one another, how, how the Atlantic was suddenly transformed from a barrier into a bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, now, as you said, uh, the town of Anamabo uh, is located on what historians call the Gold Coast of Africa. Um, what can you tell us about just uh, what's important to know about the background of the Gold Coast and especially of this town, which, as you say in your book, is at least in the period when it was flourishing in the slave trade was sort of uh, similar in size and significance to like Charleston, South Carolina and Newport, Rhode Island. That's right. Um, the Gold Coast is um, uh, um, located on the west coast of Africa, and it, it became a, a major slave trading hub. Um, around uh, 1700 or so, and continued to be a major exporter of slaves uh, all the way down to the to the end of that uh, legal slave trade uh, in 1808 or 07. So um, it it uh, it was one of the uh, major centers for the export of of slaves to the Americas, and Anamabo was the most important uh, town on the Gold Coast and the most important. Um, place for the export of those slaves to the Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, say, say the name of the town for me again, because I'm getting it wrong. Anamabo. Anamabo. Okay. Um, how did this town, uh, why did this town become so significant as a port on the Gold Coast? Um, well, in many ways, it, it didn't, it didn't have a lot of natural um, advantages. There's no, for example, there is no, there is no, what we think of as a port at Anamabo, you can't sail up to a harbor at Anamabo. Mm-hmm. Uh, British ships had to, well, European ships had to had to anchor about a mile uh, off the coast of Anamabo. So it's not exactly a natural port. Um, it it rose to to some importance earlier in the seventeenth uh, century uh, when it was an exporter of gold, hence the name, right, Gold Coast. Right. Um, which the Portuguese first gave to that coast, and and uh, then it became uh, a convenient uh, stopover for slave ships from uh, other parts of the west coast of Africa as a supplier of uh, foodstuffs uh, to uh, to those slave ships, particularly uh, maize, which was brought from the Americas and became uh, a staple uh, of the diet there, and 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 was was widely uh, cultivated and and was a major. Uh, export uh, from the port before well it continued to be all through the throughout, all through the period but uh, but the trade in gold and and maize and other uh, supplies for the slave ships was 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 what first brought it to prominence right um, what I think that, that I think there's so much in this book and in uh, similar books uh, about the Atlantic world, uh, one of which I, I just used a book called The Diligent, yes. which uh, on a, 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 about a French slave trading ship. I think I think uh, you know micro histories 
like this and like the diligent really help uh, bring this enormous uh, thing that we call the Atlantic slave trade, which again, as you mentioned, is the largest forced migration in human history involving anywhere between 10 and 12 million people. Uh, It's almost like the Holocaust in its sheer scale. It's hard to humanize. It's hard to bring it down to uh, a comprehensible scale. And I think that books like this and Robert Harms is the diligent really do that. Um, and it's sort of a microcosm of a, of a much larger uh, thing that's going on. And uh, well, you know, uh, also Dan, for so long the the history of the slave trade was dominated by what historians refer to as the numbers game. You know, trying to arrive at at some at some reasonable estimate for the size of that of that that's trade. Right. So for for a very long time, that that dominated the the history, and it was very heavily statistical. It it didn't have much of a human dimension. And mm-hmm. so that's exactly, I think, what what people like Robert Harms and the Diligent, and, and it's certainly what I tried to do uh, in this book. I mean, I think of this of this book as a biography of a, of an African town, and right? I, and I did try even even in this book uh, to to humanize that story by focusing as much as I could on individuals and and you know to put to put real people um, in that history. Right. I mean, it's, when I teach courses on slavery and, and African-American history, I, I like to use the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, uh, which is this wonderful online uh, resource. But, of course, the problem there is that we go right back to the numbers game. That's and right. it's very hard to find the, the human beings uh, in, that, in those numbers. Right. And uh, the, it's, it's a real challenge. The other important thing, I think, for students to understand, too, is that is that the slave trade was conducted very differently in different parts of Africa. You know, mm-hmm. there's not just one slave trade. In fact, there are many slave trades, right? And, and it's important for us to understand how, how that trade differed, uh, say, in uh, Anamabo than it, than it did in Old Calabar, which was the, the, the site of my, of my previous book. So right. that's an important thing, I think, also for students to understand. Yeah. Uh, one thing I, I think that comes through loud and clear, uh, especially in your first chapter, that uh, some people would find very surprising is uh, is who called the shots uh, on the Gold Coast. And uh, I have another pronunciation question. Uh, uh, Fante? Fante? Uh, what's, what's the, the pronunciation? For? Yes, the Fante. The Fante. Um, there's some... I hesitate to use the word funny, but I did find them funny. Some funny stories in the first chapter about the uh, the frustrations of the English authorities, especially of the Royal African Company, uh, as they tried to um, uh, deal with the local African authorities, uh, and and just having no success at all. Um, you know, as you say, uh, the fancy were they call the shots and. In, at almost every in almost every power struggle between the English and local Africans, it was the local Africans who ended up winning. Absolutely. Uh, how is again? I think that most people who look at the slave trade who are not specialists, and that's most people who are listening to this podcast, are going to say, "Wait a minute! It, you know, the Africans are the victims here. They're being enslaved. Uh, how is it that the Africans are calling the shots?" Uh, in this exchange, how how was that possible? Well, uh, um, it, you know, I think if, if if we pause for a minute and think about the way that slave trade was conducted, um, the Fanti are are essentially the middlemen. They they control the trade along the coast, 
most of the supply of slaves, probably three quarters, um, is coming from deeper in the interior, protect, particularly from the Asante uh, Empire, which was expanding very rapidly uh, over the course of most of this uh, 18th century and kept a steady stream of, of slaves uh, pouring toward the, uh, the Gold Coast. But uh, the Fanti were able to position themselves as middlemen between the Asante in the interior and the Europeans uh, who arrived uh, on the coast. And even though the Europeans built, you know, these very impressive looking forts, which are still impressive looking today, and, and Anambabo Fort still stands, in fact, today, um, and they, they do look very imposing, but but in fact, it's it's really a mistake to think of them as forts so much as they were um, armed trading post. Mm-hmm. And the the number of, of Europeans in those forts at any given time would have been very small. Uh, they were simply overwhelmed by the by the local population, and they depended in, entirely on the local population. For example, for their food and sustenance. I mean, it you know, it, the guns were normally pointed in those forts, not toward the Africans in the towns in which they resided, but you know, outward uh, to the sea Mm -hmm. really meant to to defend the Europeans from other Europeans more than they were uh, from the Africans. Uh, You know, they they resided in those Africans according to treaties that they negotiated with local rulers. They paid ground rent for those for the for the for the right to to occupy those forts. And uh, that could be withdrawn uh, and sometimes was. Mm -hmm. Um, So so the Europeans really were uh, uh, fairly weak uh, players uh, in this period. It, you know, it's a mistake to confuse what, what was happening in, in this period with what happens in the colonial era in the 19th century, you know. Where right. It's a very different story in, in this period. Yep. And, you know, of course, for most Europeans, uh, a trip to Africa was uh, – a little bit short of a of a death sentence. Uh, you 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 throw some statistics out in your in your first chapter about you know uh, crews uh, of Europeans who arrive you know perfectly healthy in Africa and then something like a month or two later, they're all laid up. Yeah. Uh, they can barely function. Yeah, and the death um, the death rate in some cases was astronomically high. Uh, and you know it, it's sort of the reverse of what happens um, in the Americas, where uh, you know Native Americans die. Um, you know, in huge numbers from diseases introduced by Europeans to which they had, had no natural immunity. It's sort of the same for for the Europeans who arrive in Africa and confronted uh, a disease climate, um, you know, mm-hmm. which they have no immunity and, and which was uh, deadly uh, to them. Right. Um, and of course, the Europeans also, uh, those who survived, those who were lucky enough to survive, also established, many of them established relationships with the local African population, which, of course, vastly outnumbered the European population. And you know, I mentioned a minute ago how the local Africans drove the English authorities absolutely crazy with their demands for rum and for tribute and various things. But sometimes the, the, the English soldiers and the officials also drove the uh, European officials kind of crazy. And there was one guy I, I can't remember his name, but uh, who was seems to have been constantly uh, kind of shifted between Cape Coast Castle and uh, an Amabo Fort uh, because the, the 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 local authorities just didn't know what to do with him. Well, that's and, right. Uh, I it, mean, he had established very close, uh, you know, friendships and trade relationships with the Africans in the town. I mean, again, the Europeans were very much dependent on those on those Africans in, in the town. And and often they did 
um, enter into, you know, various kinds of business and personal relationships uh, with the Africans. And yes, sometimes it was a little hard for the English authorities to tell where their loyalties actually uh, lay because, uh, you know, they they, they they needed the support of the Africans in the town. And, and, and then, of course, there's the whole uh, business of country marriages where they enter into into uh, long-term relationships with um, with anti-women uh, that are also a, a very important part of life in, in the town and the relationships mm-hmm. be- that govern the, the, the relationships between the Europeans and the English and the Africans. Yeah, I, I remember one of the English uh, chiefs of the fort at one point writes back home and saying, this guy is giving away all our trade secrets. You know, he's telling the Africans, yes. you know, all our stuff. Yes. You know, he's, who's, whose side is this guy on? Exactly. Um, but, you know, in Africa, it was the Africans who called the shots. That's right. Um, one person who is very prominent in this book is uh, a guy named uh, – is it John Coranti? Coranti, that- yes. Coranti, right. Um, and this guy was uh, sort of a, a – almost a Kissingerian diplomat. Yes. I mean he was uh, very good at manipulating – Very crafty politician. Uh, the English – not just English but you know, playing off the English and the French and other Europeans. This is – the, you know the British are the most important European power in this book, but of course the slave trade is uh, is an open competition between various European powers who are establishing uh, plantations in the New World and looking for for workers. Uh, how was he able to manipulate Europeans to establish his own power base? Well, he's a fascinating uh, character, and and um, as I said, I started this. This project with by following William uh, Cesaroco uh, back to Anamabo and and thinking that he would be my story, but but it was through him that I met his father, who was John Caranti, who who really is uh, the most important figure uh, in Anamabo and the most important figure uh, in the entire Gold Coast uh, during this period. Um, I was also able to piece together. Pretty much a, a you know a, not a full fledged biography of him, but but a much fuller uh, biography of him than anyone had done before. Um, you know his story. I think it isn't entirely clear, but he was certainly related to to um, the most powerful Cabosir, which is the title that was given to sort of the the local uh, rulers among the uh, the Fanti uh, states and towns, and uh, he mentions that he was taken into the to the English fort at Cape Coast Castle as a as a youth and educated uh, there, uh, and even in his old age could still you know recite the alphabet and that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> so so he learned English you know as very young, um, and um, also though you know it's clear kept his eyes open uh, when he was in as a as a youth in Cape Coast Castle, and he learned. He learned very, very much about about the English ways, and he was able to turn all of that knowledge to his advantage. Uh, he was just a masterful politician, and so he he really plays a big role, I think, in 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 leading Anamabo to its position of prominence in this period. So he was, you know, not only was he a political leader, um, a diplomat, as you say, uh, he also, of course, was responsible for governing the the town locally. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, carrying out diplomatic relations with the African states uh, surrounding him, and he was also also a very prominent military leader and regarded as a as a fierce uh, warrior. Um, so you know he's he's a he's a very um, 
well-rounded uh, figure and I think uh, deserves a prominent place in the history of the 18th century Atlantic world. Um, but, you know, he's, he's, he really is a masterful politician and, and he understands, you know, how these European states are vying with one another, uh, not only in Africa, but in Europe. And to that, in that regard, you know, he sends, he sends uh, one son to France, uh, to, uh, to the French court, um, and he sent uh, another son, William Cesaroco, to London, and it and that that son was kidnapped en route to London, but did eventually mm-hmm. did eventually arrive there. And so he uses these sons as his eyes and ears in London and Paris, and um, you know through 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 all those means, just just becomes you know incredibly knowledgeable, uh, not only about you know how to affect political change uh, in Africa, but but how to play those European. Uh, major powers off against one another, and you know the way he the way he plays the French and the English off mm-hmm. one another is is really very impressive. <laughs> and he is a I think that uh, people would find him to be uh, almost a, a morally puzzling figure because he does, as you mentioned, uh, he does really complicate the 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 conventional moral calculus of the slave trade that portrays understandably, Africans as victims and Europeans as victimizers, because that doesn't fit this guy at all. No. Uh, you know, he, he, uh, he's, he's an essential middleman uh, in between, you know, because, you know, one of the things that, again, that's important to understand is that very few of the slaves who are going on the boats are coming from the immediate area right. of the town. They're coming from far inland, right. in some cases, very far inland right. and, and, being brought uh, to the coast. Um, yet here's a guy who, uh, as you said, he, he has to rescue one son from slavery, yet he is also responsible for enslaving, what, tens of thousands? Undoubtedly. I mean, he, of he, other people. You know, he is not only the, the political leader who is largely responsible, I think, for positioning an, an Amabo as the major slave trading port on the Gold Coast, but he himself is directly involved in the slave trade. I mean, he made his fortune through the slave trade. Uh, so he was also a prominent trader, merchant, along with all these other hats he wore. So yes, he was directly uh, responsible uh, for the enslavement of probably tens of thousands of, of other um, Africans. And, you know, there are even there were even some allegations that that he may have been responsible for kidnapping some, uh, some of those, uh, some of those people him, uh, himself. So mm-hmm. yes, he's a he's a very complicated uh, figure. And, and, um, as you suggest, the the question of the morality of the slave trade becomes very murky the closer you you get to it on the ground. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to answer a question that uh, I always get when I teach this class, and it, it's apropos to this conversation we've been having. Um, how could a man who had to rescue one of his own sons from slavery in the New World be responsible for the slavery of thousands or tens of thousands of others? Uh, how could – simply Africans enslave other Africans? Well, I mean, I think it's important to, to remember that, you know, the concept of Africa really is a European construct. I mean, Africans did not think of the place they lived as Africa. They did not think of, of themselves as Africans. Um, you know, they thought of themselves as, as members of, of certain uh, ethnic 
um, groups, in this case, the fan T. Um, and um, you know, they faced uh, a lot of enemies. And uh, it was largely from from that group uh, that they derived their slaves. I mean, the other major source of slaves on the Gold Coast, uh, probably about a fourth of them did come from within the Fante Confederacy. Um, and those largely were uh, people who were convicted of crimes and would have otherwise been put to death. So, you know, the major source of slaves are the are, are people who are regarded as criminals who would have been executed, whose lives are therefore forfeit, right? And And, you know, who can be who can be um, sold and, you know, sold away because their lives have been forfeit. Um, And the other would have been prisoners of war um, who are in the same condition, you know, whose, whose lives have been forfeit and could, could be, you know, executed. And, and certainly tens of thousands of them were executed rather than sold. So um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a complicated moral equation and one that, that we might not, necessarily uh, embrace but um you know th- this this was this was the understanding i think and you know money is a powerful lure right um i, I don't want to get too uh, esoteric and historiographical because nothing is more certain to put people to sleep than historiography <laughs> but um including myself uh but you know it has been – there's a kind of an argument among historians about uh, the extent to which Europeans were able to pressure pressure Africans to sell them slaves. And some, some historians have posited what's, what they call a guns-to-slaves cycle, right. uh, sort of arguing in essence that Europeans got Africans addicted to guns, which of course they controlled the access to the the firearms and the gunpowder and the ammunition, and that you know injecting these guns into African societies uh, set off a spiral of warfare, uh, leading to slaves, the slaves then being sold to the Europeans for more guns and ammunition and so forth. Uh, one historian in particular named John Thornton, who I know you're familiar with, has been extremely critical of this uh, this argument because he says it kind of takes the agency away from Africans uh, like Coranti and it, it sort of infantilizes them. I, I wonder what you think about arguments about things like the gun-slave cycle and the extent to which Africans really were in charge of things on the ground, including the supply of slaves. Well, I, I, um, I've learned a lot from, from John Thornton uh, over the years, and um, he's a, a great inspiration for a lot of the work I do on the Black Atlantic. And I do um, agree with his assessment of that important argument. I mean, it, it is – and I think I, I, I tried to make this point in the book. It is, it, I don't think that, that the trade in guns and ammunition – uh, in Africa, which is a hugely important part of the trade, is entirely unrelated to warfare in Africa. Um, in fact, I think, for example, that the Fanti benefited enormously from their access to weapons, which which was much greater uh, given their role as middlemen. Their access to European guns and ammunition was much greater than was the case uh, of 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 um, groups more further in the interior. And mm-hmm. I think particularly in their wars of expansion, uh, that was great benefit to them. Um, but I think it would be a mistake to 
to imagine that that the Fante Wars or the Asante Wars were were fueled by that trade. Um, I think those wars would have gone on with or without the trade. Yeah. Uh, but 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 certainly they played a role in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that if that clarifies anything, yeah, I think I think it does. Uh, you said it better than I could. Um, I, I, as we've said before, you, you, uh, Africans drove Europeans crazy with their demands for goods and uh, the high prices for slaves. Yet Europeans controlled access to firearms. Why do you think that Europeans didn't have therefore more leverage? Uh, given they controlled access to guns and ammunition, and these were things that the Fanti in particular were increasingly uh, dependent upon. Well, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, it, the slave trade is a market, right? I mean, it, it is driven. It was driven largely by the laws of supply and demand. Um, though those might not have been fully understood at the time. I mean, certainly you see, you know, the the trade uh, in slaves spike when you know when the Asante are 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 engaged in in a major. Uh, expedition or something i mean you know you do you do see these these uh, ebbs and flows in the trade that that you know you we can often uh, tie very directly to these to the wars that are underway at any given moment so you know there there is and you do of course see a rising demand for for guns and weapons and ammunition at the same time right i mean so right. so again those they sort of go hand in hand in a way in that you know the wars increased demand for guns and ammunition and at the same time produce more slaves. Right. So, yep. So yeah, it's a very, in some ways a very symbiotic uh, sort of relationship. Right. Um, in your, uh, in your, cha- your chapter on a guy named Richard Brew, yes. uh, we've been talking about guns, but of course there were many, many other commodities that, Europeans uh, needed to, needed to hold on their ships in order to meet what for them was a, a, a maddeningly fickle and complex African demand. And, you know, one thing I like about this book and also about the, the book, The Diligent, is uh, you know m- most people seem to think that European ships just kind of pulled up uh, to uh, to an African port like you would drive into a supermarket and just loaded their slaves on the ship and then pulled away. Whereas very often it took you know several months uh, to fill a, a, a slave ship, and you never really knew what commodities the Africans who controlled the trade were going to want in exchange for their slaves. Uh, you could have a ship full of textiles, and then the Africans would say, "Wait, we need guns, or we need lead bars, and things like that." Uh, so in in this chapter on Richard Brew, you, you talk about some of the commodities that. Uh, Africans demanded yes. for for slaves. What were the major commodities that they wanted, and where did they come from? Well, along with the uh, the guns and and ammunition, which would of course been manufactured in uh, Britain, um, another and another probably the other the other largest uh, um, group of trade goods would have been fabrics. Uh, those came from various sources, and and they were in very high demand. But but as you suggest. Uh, the the trade could be problematic because often you know um, Africans were very insistent on on a particular pattern a particular color I mean you might you might send out a load of fabrics that would have sold very well you know the year before but might not be worth very much by the time they arrived on the coast those fabrics came uh, from some of them 
from um, England, of course. I mean, this is also the period of the Industrial Revolution, driven in large part by the uh, the manufacture of uh, cloth, right? So, so that's one major source. But also, uh, other another major source was India. Uh, so, so it's not just an Atlantic story. The tentacles of the trade reach uh, reach much further than just the Atlantic. So, right. India provided also a substantial uh, amount of uh, that fabric. And then, of course, you mentioned also the trade in iron, uh, uh, those iron bars. I mean, that those those were tons and tons and tons of, of these iron mm-hmm. bars were were traded and, and uh, then melted down by by um, local uh, smiths and manufactured into into uh, other kinds of goods. There was also a substantial trade in in cooking utensils made out of uh, brass or copper um, knives, uh, which were used uh, I think primarily for agriculture and that sort of thing, but knives yeah. were traded mm-hmm. in the millions, um, and also a, a you know a trade in luxury luxury goods, um, which might even include some unsuspecting unsuspected things like you know uh, English furniture and and uh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. clothes and and silks and brocades and satins and uh, swords and uh, you know. Uh, Feathered hats and all that sort of thing, mirrors, um, things, things like that that might not immediately uh, pop to mind. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, towards the end of that chapter that uh, Richard Brews had, had that sort of Georgian mansion. You mentioned this kind of incongruity that yes. you, you see in Africa. He's got a Georgian mansion yes. uh, in, in the town, and, and you, you call it sort of a microcosm. Yes. Of the African Atlantic world, what 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 did you mean by that? Well, uh, Richard Brew is another fascinating uh, character. You know, a native of Ireland who who comes out to the coast in his probably I think in his early twenties and with a very short in a short time rises up to be uh, the chief of one of the smaller outforts and and obviously is a man also of of great uh, skill and and ability um, and then becomes eventually uh, the um, at the uh, the chief of of uh, the fort at Anamabo, uh, where he uh, sort of comes into contact with John Caranti, and the two of them have a have a, a wonderfully complicated uh, relationship because Brew um, Brew took as his country wife John Caranti's daughter, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then had a mixed race uh, family. Um, he spent his his entire life with with her uh, in. What he called Castle Brew, this this you know Georgian uh, a mansion furnished with you know the the highest uh, luxury goods, you know mahogany furniture and, and crystal goblets and um, you know every 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 luxury that money could afford, um, you know was was on display in in Castle Brew. So Castle Brew was was home to not only to to Brew himself but to this to his um, African country wife and their mixed race uh, children. Um, it also housed. It had uh, storehouses to to house uh, the the vast quantities of European trade goods that that Brew imported. Um, I think he also may have have housed some slaves there. The the fort also was open to the tr- for, to the traders to 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 house their slaves. So so probably he would have had more of them housed there. But there might well have been some of them at Castle Brew, and uh, of course he had his own uh, African. Uh, slaves, um, his personal uh, slaves, who 
who uh, who lived and worked at uh, Castle Brew. Um, so yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a it is an amazingly incongruous uh, <laughs> uh, uh, sort of building, and it too still stands remarkably. Really? Yes, yes. <laughs> wow. Uh, one another thing that's incongruous is uh, a statement that he makes, and you quote mm-hmm. at the very end of your chapter where he says, uh, "I'm a friend to liberty, and I mortally hate." logs and chains, though I live in the midst of slaves and slavery. Yes. How could he be a friend to liberty yet be uh, an extremely successful slave merchant? Well, I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't that the, the $64,000 question? And when <laughs> we ask about our own founding fathers who were slaveholders, right? I mean, it, Indeed. You, you wonder that you wonder that their heads didn't explode, but, but um, so, so Brew was not alone, of course, in, in calling himself a lover of liberty and, and, and valuing his own personal uh, liberty very highly, but then perfectly willing to, to trample on the rights of uh, of others. It's a wonderful quote. Um, you know, the reference to logs and chains is a reference to the way that that slaves were brought from the interior uh, of Africa into the town of Anamabo, and often rather than being you know imprisoned or something, they were they were allowed to be outside, but they were they were kept captive by by a chain you know to their ankle which was then attached to a log uh, mm-hmm. so you know the, the the reference is a very direct one to what brew would have seen every time he walked around uh, the right. town of Anamabo. yeah um, we already talked about the the kind of debate about the sort of guns and slave cycle uh in your chapter on the process of enslavement mm-hmm. uh you discussed this, um, you know, the fancy uh, kind of blaming Europeans uh, for the slave trade, right. that the Europeans had sort of created this demand uh, for slavery, and then they had come to Africa with their guns and their liquor and all these wonderful things. Why did the fancy think it was necessary to uh, try to shift blame <laughs> On, on the Europeans for this, it, it, it is a it is a great uh, it is a great turn on on their part, isn't it? Um, the sort of <laughs> the sort of um, uh, cast to cast uh, Europeans and as the role of the, the enslavers, and and of course they're not entirely wrong, are they? I mean, the Europeans did create the the demand, and and you know they were they were um, of course responsible for shipping those uh, millions of Africans across the Atlantic. So, so the Fantis certainly weren't entirely wrong. Um, you know, some of this came from, from, from this sometimes conflicted relationship uh, between the, the Fanti and the, and the, the British who, who, um, who were often very critical of the Fanti in in various ways. So, so yeah, the Fanti, the Fanti find a way to sort of, uh, to cast uh, to cast the blame back on the British, right? Uh, uh, you know, another remarkable uh, exchange that you describe in this chapter is a uh, a, a speech of a, of a of a captain named uh, William Snellgrave, uh, who uh, appears a lot in the in the literature on slavery and the slave trade. Uh, he uh, confronted a, a a slave rebellion on his on his ship, and uh, he he had, he. Told his captives something very interesting. Uh, I wondered how they received it. But what? What? Could you tell our listeners what did Snowgrave tell his his slaves? Well, I mean, uh, uh, Snowgrave essentially said, 
you know, have you been have you been badly treated on board this ship? Uh, right? Have you been abused? Uh, haven't you been haven't you been uh, uh, well treated? Um, and Snellgrave, you know, does sort of takes the opposite approach to the to the Fantee's description of the trade that we just talked about. I mean, Fant- uh, Snellgrave points out that. You know, he he wasn't the enslaver, right? They were already enslaved, uh, that they'd been legally purchased. And, uh, and you know, had it not been for that, they would probably uh, be dead. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 sort of the flip side of the uh, the Fantese argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it kind of reminded me a little bit of a, of, of a speech. Uh, those people who have uh, watched the film uh, 12 Years a Slave might be familiar with this, but there's a scene in which – a character named Bass, who was played by Brad Pitt uh, in the film, is talking to the character played by Michael Fassbender, who's uh, the Epps, the the bad slave owner, and uh, he's trying to argue, you know, how can you, you know, own these people? How these? And he says, well, I I, I bought them. I I, I can right. show you the receipt, you know. And it's sort of Snowgray's argument yeah. too, like just you know, behave yourselves. Yeah. I bought you fair and square. Fair and square, <laughs> yes. That's, that's, <laughs> that's Snowgrave's argument, and and you know that he he was not the enslaver, right? It was their own countrymen yeah. who'd done the enslaving. I, is is was his was his argument to the to the Africans. Now you're right. I, we don't know how they received it. It probably not probably didn't find it terribly convincing, but uh, <laughs> probably not. But but, uh, <laughs> but it is an interesting argument nonetheless, and I, is an insight. I think into the into the minds of the of the captains of those ships, and you know, I mean, we must you, you know you have to wonder how they could have rationalized such horror um, as the Middle Passage and and all the suffering that was a part of it. But so I think Snowgrave's little speech does offer some insight into into how their minds uh, worked and how they were able to, how they were able to justify you know that that horror to themselves. Yeah, it is. It is hard, and uh, you know, one of the things I I think we all try to do as historians uh, is to urge our readers and our students to empathize. But it is hard. It is hard to empathize with slave ship captains, and you know, there's some you know accounts of the the the, the means in, that that captains and crews employed to uh, to ensure discipline on their ships, which are absolutely horrifying, and you know, it it, it makes it hard to. Uh, Put yourself into their shoes, no, for sure. It really does. It's very difficult for us, uh, um, but I think you're right. It, 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 it's it's necessary in a way, right? I mean, we have to we have to try to understand, um, even though that doesn't mean we have to sympathize. Um, you know, it's important to to try to understand. That's right. What they That's thought right. they were about. Uh, this book does. Uh, we've been talking about the British and. The Africans, especially, but uh, there, this book does eventually get to the United States, and uh, in particular, a group of people who you call the Rum Men. Yes. Uh, who are the Rum Men, uh, and what do they have to do with uh, trading uh, an Anamabo? Well, the the, um, the Rum Men are Rhode Islanders, um, and Rhode Island was a was a major uh, shipping. Uh, Colony um, under the uh, the British colonial system, and um, they once the slave trade is opened up to all comers, um, these Rhode Islanders become um, engaged in the slave trade. Um, they they are they are a important link in that triangular trade, right? So they they bring alcohol, or actually they're bringing. Um, um, 
you know, one of the byproducts of, of sugar production, they bring that to Rhode Island where they build refineries and manufacture the rum. They're not, they're not for the most part, buying the rum in the Caribbean. They're manufacturing the rum uh, in Rhode Island. So it, that mm-hmm. distilling becomes a, an important uh, industry. Um, and then they, they, they take that rum uh, to the west coast of Africa where it becomes uh, the most popular um, alcoholic beverage on the west coast of Africa supplants what had been, you know, brandy had been sort of the uh, um, the alcohol of choice before rum arrived on the scene. But rum mm-hmm. becomes much more uh, popular and the Rhode Islanders actually um, uh, distill a, um, a higher octane rum uh, that was uh, extremely popular on the west coast of Africa. Um, and then they 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 uh, trade that rum for um, slaves and they carry those slaves largely to um, to the Caribbean and to uh, the southern uh, colonies of um, South Carolina and Virginia, though some, of course, do also wind up in Rhode Island, which was also a slaveholding colony. Well, all the colonies were uh, mm-hmm. in this period, mm-hmm. slaveholding colonies. Uh, you know, in this chapter, you kind of uh, bring us on the ships, and uh, you know, it's really interesting to you know, put yourself in the shoes of one of the owners or the investors of one of these vessels. Uh, you know, as you talk, the slave trade was very risky. Very, it was risky. Very risky. You know, right? I mean, I mean, every business venture is is risky. But you know, thinking about these guys are investing in ships which they're not going to see. For at least another year, right. by the time they go to Africa, do their trading, come right. back if, if they if they ever see them, and it's not like you can just you know get your GPS and see where the ship is. No, it's, no. <laughs> uh, besides the, the the dangers that these ships faced from their uh, enslaved cargoes, you know the the, the fate of the, the threat of rebellion and disease and etc. Uh, they also faced problem with their crew. Uh, what were the crew members of these ships like? Well, yes, I mean the the the, the crews, as you say, the slave trade was a risky business. It, it took people away from, uh, from their homes for a very long time. Uh, it was, as you've also suggested, in many ways, you know, an unpleasant uh, business, um, and so it sometimes attracted some rough characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yes, they could they, you know. They could um, they could take over a ship. They could they could turn pirates. They um, um, they could be very difficult to to control. Absolutely. Um, and you know, as you suggest, once the once that ship sails off into the Atlantic, then you know it, it that ship becomes its own little microcosm in a very uh, complicated um, interplay of of um, of people on board right. those ships. You know, another thing you mentioned in that chapter is the desire of uh, slave owners, or rather ship owners, to uh, attract or purchase, I should say, certain uh, ethnic groups in Africa. Um, And sometimes that – the extent that they were successful at at doing that could result in the sort of a concentration of a certain group of slaves in a particular area. To what extent do you think that – ship owners and captains sort of understood ethnic divisions in Africa and to what extent were did the African slave trade distribute slaves sort of randomly throughout the Atlantic and to what extent could they be concentrated in particular places? Well, um, Dan, that, 
as you know, is a very complicated question. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. But <laughs> still busy uh, debating, right? Um, so, uh, without going too far into the into the historiography, um, I would say that captains captains certainly had some understanding of ethnic divisions among among the Africans that they purchased, as did the slave owners in the Americas who had demands for 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 slaves from particular ethnic groups who they thought had qualities of one kind or another that that made them more valuable in in a particular time and place. Um, I think uh, probably captains understood less than they thought they did. Um, You also see the slave traders, uh, the European slave traders and the African slave traders, for that matter, on the coast of Africa, uh, you know, manipulating these these categories themselves. I mean, you had Right. You had governors of the forts, uh, for example, the the British forts, who would who would bring slaves from other parts of Africa who were who sold more cheaply, because uh, slaves from the Gold Coast were in high demand uh, and uh, were valued more highly. But the but the but the governors would sometimes and the chiefs of the outforts would sometimes bring in uh, slaves from other parts of Africa that were less valuable and 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 sell them as if they were uh, Gold Coast slaves. Uh, and this was. Not always easy to do with more experienced captains, but could certainly be done with less experienced captains. So, mm-hmm. so you know, I think I think again that the Europeans probably understood less than they than they thought they did. Um, as though, I mean, you you do get because of the nature of the trade, because of its of its rise and fall, uh, you do get you know large exports. From say the Gold Coast that that peak at certain times, and and you also so you would see concentrations of slaves from the Gold Coast arriving in places like Charleston and uh, uh, Kingston, Jamaica, at particular moments in time, and and so you do have certainly concentrations of of slaves from the Gold Coast in you know places in the Americas. Now, but but that's complicated too, right? Because this also depends on where from the from where in the interior those slaves are being brought. They're not all coming from a single ethnic group at any Sure. Uh, and 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 some of this depends on those uh, Asante wars of expansion. So, you know, at one moment the 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 Asante are engaged in a war with one ethnic group and it you know, 10 years later it's a different ethnic group. And so uh, or more than more than one at, at any given moment, and 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 so you know the ethnicity is a is a very uh, complicated uh, question, yeah, and and, and very very <laughs> difficult to disentangle. Uh, yep. Though it is certainly very important too for for you know slave culture uh, in the Americas, particularly in the in the period of the slave trade. Yep. Uh, well, uh, we've been talking about sort of the rise of uh, Anambabo, uh, but at a certain point, the town went into decline. And of course, the, the single most important blow to the slave trade there was uh, the abolition of the slave trade by Britain on, in January of 1808. Uh, but it wasn't the only uh, factor that went into the decline of the town. Can you talk about um, how, uh, as, as you say, things fell apart in Amabo? Yes, uh, uh, along with the abolition of the of the trade, which of course 
you know, devastated the economy, right? I mean, I mean that you know the economy of the of the town had been built on that trade, and and without it, the the economy just simply collapsed. But but the other major factor here is is a war with the Asante, and this is where, uh, you know, that long history of of diplomacy. For example, John Caranti, uh, you know, you see John Caranti, who's able to form alliances with other states to prevent the Asante from from um, from reaching the coast. I mean, this this was sort of the overriding goal of the Fante was was to maintain their position as middlemen and not to allow the Fante to to, you know, take charge of the coast themselves, which would have right. kept them out of the trade. And so. For for you know a century or so, they're actually very successful at that. Though they were far weaker than the Asante. I mean, the Asante Empire was was vast compared to the to the Fante uh, Confederacy, and it was a much more powerful uh, empire. Um, but it is largely through the failure of diplomacy that they wind up in this conflict uh, with the Asante, um, and in that in that war, um, they were just completely devastated. I mean, the, the Asante, uh, within a very short time, reached the Namibo, uh, attacked the fort. Um, the Asante were just slaughtered and uh, died by the by the tens of thousands. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. it was just carnage. Um, so the, these two things together, the abolition of the slave trade, which destroyed the economy, uh, combined with this this devastating uh, war uh, with the Asante um, just destroyed the town. And, and, you know, had the slave trade continued, the town might have recovered. Um, But with its economic base gone, uh, it it could not. And so, you know, now it it is a fairly sleepy um, village, um, a very small uh, town uh, today. Right. I think you mentioned that – uh, I know this sounds incongruous given that it's a slave fort, but it kind of has, has a guest book yes. that you can sign. And so yeah. does Cape Coast Castle, which is yeah. sort of right down the coast, and which is a far more uh, popular destination, uh, I take it. That's right. I mean, uh, uh, Cape Coast Castle, you know, almost now when any – when any uh, Western leader like President Obama visits Ghana, it's it's slave, it's uh, Cape Coast Castle, right? It's the it's the door of no return. I mean that that has become uh, the the sort of principal site of memory, certainly on the Gold Coast and and arguably on the entire uh, west coast of Africa for the history of the yeah. slave trade. But in fact, uh, far more far more slaves left from Anamabo than left from Cape Coast Castle. And and um, Anamabo's fort, as I said, still stands today. For many years, it was a prison. Um, but just in the last couple of years, uh, the town has has tried to, uh, to turn it into a museum. Um, so far, without very much success. But um, but but in terms of you know a site of memory for the history of the slave trade, it's incredibly important. And the town itself, uh, along as I suggested, along with the fort, you have you have Richard Bruce uh, uh, Castle Bruce still stands. Though I think the history of it may be virtually lost. I don't think it's I don't think it is celebrated as Castle Bruce. I'm not sure that history shows up now. But but the building is still there, and uh, so is John Caranti's. Uh, Palace, which was built by the uh, Dutch as a trading 
building in the the seventeenth huh. century. All those, wow. all those, the buildings of isn't it amazing that all of the, it is amazing. All of those buildings are still standing there today. It should be, it should be an, an important uh, site of memory for the history of the slave trade. I also observed that uh, when when the British uh, abolished the slave trade, uh, many of their African former partners were just incredulous. Completely, like, you know, like, how could you do this? You know, we, we're we're doing business together. Uh, you know, it, it's it's kind of again. I think people would find that. I guess ironic isn't the, the right word, but just kind of very surprising. Right. No, I mean the the Africans could hardly believe what was happening to them, and, and could could. You know, could could scarcely wrap their minds around the fact that one, one day, you know, uh, the slave trade is legal and booming and going along at its usual clip, and the next day, it's over. Um, and and it it, it 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 yes, I mean, it was it was as you can imagine, very hard for the for the Africans to understand. But of course, it would be a mistake to think that the slave trade ended either. Of course, it didn't. That's right. Yeah, it, it moved though. Uh, uh, I mean, partly. The fact that that the Gold Coast was so exposed, and the fact that there were these uh, uh, British forts uh, scattered all along the Gold Coast, meant that the British were able to largely shut down the, the trade uh, from the Gold Coast, and so the trade shift shifted further to the north and further to the south. Um, and there, while there was a dip in the trade um, immediately uh, following um, abolition in 1808, um, you know, that trade revived and, and pretty soon the volume of that trade was virtually as large in the 19th century as it, as it was in the 18th, which is actually what I'm researching right now. Well, well, there you go. That's my next question because we've kept you for the better part of an hour. So we're going to let you go. Uh, but before we do, why don't you tell us what your, what your, what your next step is? Well, I, um, I have completed uh, a manuscript that's been accepted by Harvard uh, Press. So, um, and that that is uh, an, another sort of micro history of Africans in the Old South. It it mm. tells the story of, of uh, about there. I think six chapters will be devoted to to individuals or groups of individual Africans uh, in the Old South, going from about 1740 uh, through the antebellum uh, period, um, and and. It's micro history, so you know one of the characteristics of micro history is that you know you don't look for the typical. You look for for the outliers. You look for the for the for the stories that challenge the sort of uh, macro history, the, the the sort of accepted narrative. So, for example, the first mm-hmm. chapter is is the story of a of of a mixed race woman from one of these prominent slave trading uh, families in what is today Sierra Leone, who who moved to Charleston, South Carolina in 1740, uh, bought uh, plantations and and lived her life as a member of the South Carolina planter elite. Um, uh, you know, not not the story one would normally expect. Uh, no. <laughs> so so that's just one example of of uh, of the uh, the kind of Africans I've identified and whose stories I'll be I'll be telling in in my next book. And the larger my larger project uh, is is a study of the U.S. involvement in the illegal slave trade of the 19th century. Oh, fabulous! Well, Randy Sparks, uh, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks, Dan. It's been a pleasure. So we've been speaking with Randy Sparks. Uh, he is the author of Where the Negroes Are Masters, an African port in the era of the slave trade. And uh, as you look on this 
page on New Books in American Studies, you will see an icon of this book, which will lead you to its Amazon.com page. So, uh, you know, historians write books to make piles and piles of money. <laughs> so, uh, yes, that's exactly why we write books. Exactly why. So, buy this book. So, uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, this is once again Dan Kilbride, the host of New Books in American Studies, and we will see you again. So long. <laughs>